ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Every year, weather events like flood and bushfire wipe out critical infrastructure in Australia. The devastating cost of a once in a century flood. A bridge reduced to rubble, sent tumbling into the Fitzroy River and major roads washed away. On the one side here, we've got the uh, Fitzroy Crossing Bridge, which has obviously buckled badly and is impassable. This means the only sealed route servicing the region is now cut at both ends, isolating Kununurra, Horse Creek and Wyndham. It just reminds you how isolated you are and how vulnerable the road network is into your community. Getting supplies from Perth to isolated communities will likely involve a 12,000 kilometre return trip via South Australia up the centre to Catherine and then into the Kimberley. That's the same as driving from the English Channel at Calais, roughly, to Vladivostok on the Sea of Japan, one way. Big weather events like last year's floods in northern Australia cut communities off from the rest of the world and they cost a fortune to fix. The rebuild of the Fitzroy Bridge, which is now stronger and longer, cost a quarter of a billion dollars. Today alone, the Victorian and Federal Government said it would spend $100 million more on relief for communities affected by floods in the past two months. A big chunk of that will be spent fixing roads. On Australia Wide Today, we're going to take a look at how vulnerable Australia's infrastructure is to climate change. I'm Sinead Mangan, coming to you from Wajak Country, Perth. David Levinson is a professor of transport in the School of Civil Engineering at the University of Sydney, and he joins me now. David, how vulnerable is Australia's road infrastructure, particularly like that large regional network as we look out on that, to climate change? We saw a few years ago with the fires that Perth and Western Australia were turned into an island, uh, essentially, um, when the main road from Perth Adelaide was closed um, and the detour was 1,700 kilometers by land. So there are places that are extremely vulnerable to climate change impacts of various sorts, including increased likelihood of fires and floods and those kinds of things. So that that's road infrastructure. What about other major bits of infrastructure? Because I know you've looked across the board. So if we're looking at airports, bridges, ports, what about that? Sure. I mean, ports are on sea level, right? So they are subject to all of the vagaries of storms and over the long term rising sea level. Um, one imagines that's a slow enough process that they can adapt over time. But, you know, when there are shorter term events, you might have to close runways that go out into Botany Bay at Sydney Airport or may not want to operate certain ports during certain kinds of weather events. Um, And the issue is that with climate change, severe weather events become more common. And so the frequency with which this happens becomes higher. Uh, There's other types of infrastructure you might think about. In cities, you have public transport systems. Uh, In New York, New York metropolitan area, New Jersey Transit had kept a number of its buses in a low-lying area that got flooded during uh, Superstorm Sandy and lost a significant chunk of its bus fleet, and they were severely damaged. The New York subway system was closed for weeks in places, months in places, I think. I haven't 
seen an assessment done of the metro systems in Australia. Um, I'm sure there are places that are more vulnerable than others. And a lot of it was built more than 100 years ago. And it hasn't been, this wasn't sort of top of mind when they were designing it. So there are things that we will discover in every new weather event that we had not anticipated. There's a lot of critical infrastructure in the world, transport infrastructure, software, all sorts of things that are relying on sort of very thin reeds holding them up. Well, we don't actually have to imagine the impact of climate change. As you said, you gave the example of last year what happened in WA. Even today, the Victorian government has announced that it's going to pump $100 million into disaster relief, which is basically patching up the roads from summer flooding in the last few months. So there's no imagining with this. So, you know, in terms of Victoria, that's one summer and one state. So well, is the government budgeting I mean, for this problem? Because as you said, we're in it. It's happening. Well, it's happening. And when you say there's, there's, we don't need to imagine it because it's happening, yes, but if you're anticipating what's going to happen, I can imagine a lot of things that will happen or might happen, not all of which will happen, mm. many of which if they do happen would be very bad, but the amount of things that I could imagine spending money on far exceeds the amount of money that we actually have. Of course. Okay, so we could design and rebuild the entire system three meters off the ground so that groundwater flooding doesn't disturb the system. And that would be a very expensive thing. Most of those roads won't flood in the next 10 or 20 or 50 years. And so that money might not be best spent preventing the damage that would occur, but rather responding to the damage that actually occurs, right? So there's a trade-off between how much preparedness we want to do, given there's a lot of possible ways the system could be attacked either by nature or malicious actors and the cost of that attack. And so it might be worth accepting some damage and responding to it rather than trying to prevent lots of things that may or may not actually happen. This is a trade-off. And I, I, there's not right a single answer to this in all cases, but we have to think about it as a trade-off when we're looking at any particular investment. And maybe it's that, well, we assume that it was a hundred year flood, but now it's a 10 year flood. And that's true in some places. And there's lots of prevention things that you can do, like not building suburbs in floodplains. We have done that. We continue to permit this somehow, right? Bringing upon a greater likelihood of future damage because there's all sorts of flooding events that are not especially costly because they occur where nobody actually lives. And we just look at them and admire them. And then there's lots of flooding events that are very costly because they occur where actually people live. Well, if we choose to adapt and sort of prevent the damage from happening by building levees, that's one strategy. And then the other strategy is not to bring ourselves into the place that's going to be damaged and instead relocating ourselves or not locating ourselves in places that are more vulnerable. So what you're talking about there is personal responsibility in lots of ways, although in order to build in a floodplain, there has to be, you know, local government has to give approval for that, et cetera, et cetera. But what about the responsibility of government to be prepared for what is a change in climate? And um, any civil engineering project is a, tends to be a 50-year, like th these are long-term projects. They're, yes. not, they're, they're not patch-up jobs. When you build a major piece of infrastructure, you're thinking in those kind of terms. Are we building appropriately for the change in climate? They're not patch-up jobs, but you know, 80% of the infrastructure that's going to be there in, in 10 years is there today. So a lot, most of the infrastructure that we see now is where we're going to be in a few years. We're building infrastructure, sure, but we're not building infrastructure at, 
a 2% increase rate per year. We're building infrastructure pretty slowly. So the damage that will occur is not so much on the new builds. It's on the stuff that's already out there, which people might not have been thinking about climate change when they built it 20, 30, 50, 80 years ago. Is the Sydney Metro prepared against climate change? I would hope so, given how much they've been spending on it and how many engineers worked on it. But is Sydney Trains, which is a much older system, prepared for this? No, not not nearly to the same extent. And you see flooding along the lines, storms that we have on a regular basis here these days. What is the government's responsibility to those communities that are so open to being cut off when the climate does seem to be changing and that we can see this happening time and time again? Right. I mean, there's a few a few things that you can think about. One is, I mean, as with people who are in floodplains, the government could come in and buy out that land and turn it into reserve, parklands, forest. The people who then live there can choose to live somewhere else. And the government could also buy up that land and then sell it back to people, warning them that it's likely to be cut off and we're not going to spend the resources on it. And that may be much less expensive than building very expensive infrastructure, causeways, raised roadways, or whatever might be needed in a particular situation to serve a relatively small number of people. Again, this gets back to the the question of trade-offs. How many people are being cut off? How important is the place that's being cut off to the rest of the country as an economic producing area? Obviously, everybody loves their own community and all of that. Mm. We don't have an obligation to perpetually keep people in harm's way. If it's a larger place or more economically important, then yes, you spend the money on providing the infrastructure to serve the place, even when there might be a hundred year flood or a thousand year flood. Everyone wants to live in the moment with just-in-time services for everything. And in a physical world where you have actual weather, that's not a possible thing for everyone. Professor David Levinson from the University of Sydney. Thanks very much for talking to Australia Wide. Thank you. You're listening to ABC Australia Wide. A behaviour change programme is helping men to curb violent behaviour by focusing on their relationship with their children. But an organisation that coordinates the Caring Dads programme says more funding is needed to roll the programme out to more men across the country. It says given the high rates of family violence, they're barely managing to scratch the surface of a larger national problem. Georgia Lenton-Williams has the story from Sale in Victoria. The violence, you know, towards my partners... Yeah, ex-partners now. Yeah, it just wasn't who I wanted to be. I didn't want my daughter to grow up in that environment. I didn't. I didn't want her to. She didn't. She didn't see me that way. I was never like that with her. But I just didn't want her to grow up in that environment. You know, going to jail and and not knowing what was going to happen when I was going to see her again. It just yeah, it just changed everything and made me realise what's what's really important in life. Jake, who spoke to the ABC on the condition of anonymity, participated in a 17-week men's behaviour change program called Caring Dads after he was released from prison last year. It's provided in Victoria's Gippsland region by Anglicare Victoria. The program aims to stop men from perpetrating abuse by encouraging them to reflect on their relationships with their children and the type of father they want to be. It was rolled out in Victoria following the 2016 Royal Commission into Family Violence which found efforts to hold perpetrators to account were grossly inadequate. Kids First is the organisation that coordinates caring dads across Victoria. Its deputy CEO, Nicole Artico, says more investment in the program is needed given the prevalence of family violence. We are funded by the Victorian government to 
deliver caring dads to 194 dads each year. But the reality is it's not even scratching the surface of the need. There's an average wait time of six months for caring dads in the area where it's available that we support in Victoria. And we're speaking to services all over Australia that are saying we're ready to run the program. There's demand, but we just don't have the funding. That catchment that we cover in Victoria is very small. Nationally, there are 13 caring dads providers across Australia, covering Western Australia, New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia and Victoria. So there are still states where dads can't access the program. And even if the states where we have facilitators, those programs are very small and there is much more demand than there is capacity. Caring dads, you have to be a certified, trained facilitator to deliver caring dads. And Kids First are the certified trainer of caring dads group facilitators. So we're trained new facilitators across Australia so more dads can access the program, but it is limited to 13 providers. A spokesperson for the Victorian government says the state is leading the nation with its work to end family violence. In a statement, they say more than $3.8 billion has been invested since the Royal Commission into Family Violence, more than every other state and territory combined. Working on the front line at Anglicare Victoria, practice leader of therapeutic family violence programs, Samantha Massey, says caring dads facilitators often create discussions about the men's children. We also explore the men's own experiences of being fathered, of being parented. And, you know, look, anecdotally, there's quite a large number of men who have experienced family violence themselves as children. And it's at that point that sometimes you're starting to see some of those light bulbs go off as far as being able to reflect on their own experiences as children, but then how their own behaviours are impacting on their own children. So it's that generational cycle that we see. Men's behaviour change researcher Chris Lamming says the key element of any behaviour change program is the outcome for partners and children. I've got men come up to me still who remind me of 20 or 30 years ago of what it was like in the group and what they still remember and that it has made a difference. Now, the key thing for for me, Georgia, about that is, is that what their wife or their kids would say? It's all very well for the blokes to sort of say, oh, it was great and, you know, I really learnt did it actually make a difference for them? Did the wife feel safer? Did she feel less uh, controlled? Did she feel less coerced? Jake says he often reflects on his treatment of his daughter using concepts from the Caring Dads course. He has an important message for other men who perpetrate abuse. We have the power to change. Um, it's just all about wanting that, you know, and be, be that change. You don't have to do anything you know, extraordinary, you just have to change, you know what I mean, who, how you want to be, how you want your children to see you, and, and it's, it's possible for everyone. Jake, who participated in the Caring Dads program that aims to stop men from perpetuating abuse, sending that story there from our reporter, Georgia Lenton-Williams in Gippsland in Victoria. ABC Australia Wide. A community legal centre in WA's Kimberley is calling for more federal funding as it's forced to turn people away because of a lack of staff and resources. It's joined more than 100 centres around the country that are calling for more support ahead of a review into the National Legal Assistance Partnership, which is due to be released this month. Roseanne Maloney has this story from Broome. In the hot Kimberley sun on the corner of a street in Broome, the Kimberley Community Legal Services Office looks easily accessible. 
Yet access to the centre has not been so easy. In her 30-year career, CEO Christine Robinson says she's never seen the challenges with resources that they're having now. The, the single biggest issue that we face as a community legal service is recruiting adequate qualified staff to deliver the services that we need. It's largely impacted by the um, current shortage of suitable housing. We've got one staff member in Kununurra that's currently living in a caravan and that lease is going to come to the end shortly. While government-owned legal aid services can offer multiple incentives in the region, including housing, remote allowances and electricity subsidies, Ms Robinson says community legal centres have to go without. Up here in the Kimberley, she says the challenging work conditions have seen some job applicants ask for $30,000 above the offered pay. We can't afford to put on more lawyers and we can't afford to pay them what they're expecting. Without competitive wages and housing, they're understaffed, with eight lawyers servicing a region the size of Victoria. And it's trickling down to a community desperate for legal support. Kununurra, we had a waiting list of 25 weeks, which we cut off. We've stopped taking people for waitlist. We get to the desert every two months, to Mullum, Balgai and Billaluna. They're all high-needs areas. We can't meet their needs. All we can do is be a Band-Aid. We can respond to the emergencies. We can deal with critical matters, but we don't have the resources to get to the heart of some of the problems. Chair of Community Legal Centres Australia, Jared Brody, says the Kimberley Community Legal Service is not alone in its struggles. Australia's 165 community legal centres are facing our funding shortages and there's an overwhelming demand forcing many of them to turn away people each year. At least 200,000 people we know have been turned away. He says the situation is further challenging in remote areas where Miss Robinson's team are scraping by. In remote communities, funding at the moment does not really adequately reflect or, or prioritise the depth and complexity of legal need in remote communities. For centres working with remote and very remote Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities, you know, often experiencing disproportionately high levels of disadvantage. With a final report being released this month in a review of the National Legal Assistance Partnership, a five-year agreement for how the Federal Attorney-General will fund vital legal assistance services, Mr Brody says he wants to see more support for community legal centres. There really needs to be a doubling of overall funding for community legal services in Australia, around $125 million annually, to prevent further reductions and closures. A spokesperson for the Attorney-General, Mark Dreyfus, said the federal government recognised the extraordinary pressure community legal centres were under. They said the government would consider how future arrangements can better provide access to justice for all who need it, following the final report of the National Legal Assistance Partnership. Up in the Kimberley, Miss Robinson says she welcomes anything to help. Everything's connected. You know, we, our clients are connected to the health system. They're connected to the public welfare system. There needs to be a much greater investment. The CEO of the Kimberley Community Legal Service, Christine Robinson, speaking to our reporter in Broome, Roseanne Maloney. You're listening to Australia Wide. It's a species that I have been fighting for. Growing up in the bush is such a special thing. So when the rain does come, we've, we've got a few numbers. Well, got to never come. Put a feather in your cap. ABC Radio. 
Experts believe the wild numbat population in WA is much higher than first thought, providing a welcome boost to conservation efforts for the state's animal emblem. It was thought fewer than a thousand critically endangered numbats remained in two wild populations in the south of state. And one was in Dryandra Woodland near Narragin and the other was in the Upper Warren region near Manjimup. Local farmer Bill Smart took Albany reporter Mark Bennett into the forest to explain why he's still worried about the future for the marsupials. Bill Smart usually knows where to find his forest neighbours. Any slight disturbance, always investigate. Could be a dubbat. But lately, he's having trouble tracking them down. And quite often you'd see them under these mature wandoos when they when they lose their bark. It doesn't look like anything's been foraging here. Since a prescribed burn three years ago in the Weenup block next to Bill's farm in the Upper Warren region, sightings have become rarer. Dubats are slowly re-entering this area of bush since the fire. They come from outside areas. I haven't seen nowhere near as many as what I saw before the fire. And the limiting factor is is logs just like we're sitting on. There's so many of these logs that no longer exist and they're crucial to, to their survival. Is They've got to have somewhere to hide. But no doubt there is nubbats here, but I don't think there will ever be as many as there was. In March 2021, the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions used a helicopter to drop firebombs into the Weenup block within the Upper Warren. After walking the fire after, after that fire and observing what I observed, I stand by my original claim that 95% of the dubbats in this area of bush were incinerated. There's, there's no way dubbats could survive the carnage that I seen after that fire. Not only nubbats, but quenda and every other small small animal that lived in the bush. Exactly how many nubbats lived in the 100,000 hectare Upper Warren region and in the Weenup Reserve before the fire is not known. We had some direct questions asked of the department and we, we, we didn't have those answers. Um, that was, you know, are they still present after prescribed burn? Duncan Palmer heads up the Department of Biodiversity, Conservation and Attractions at Pemberton in the Upper Warren region. So we undertook a detailed study specifically of that whole area. The key information we're getting from it is that they're present and they're present in both spring burnt areas and autumn burnt areas and they're present throughout uh, the various range of sites we've got within that prescribed burns. The state government has started a 10-year study program placing 56 monitoring cameras across the Upper Warren. And it's important to point out that you know this area is, is a... Um, a really strong hold for not just numbats but a lot of our threatened fauna, um, tudich, uh, whirlies, ringtail possums. So the work we're doing here, we, we are interested in all those species. Obviously there's a lot of community interest in the prescribed burn we undertook in 2021 at uh, Weenup. You know, we recognised it wasn't the result that we're striving for. We, we really do highly value the the uh, ecological importance of, of this area particularly. To get a better understanding of um, distributions of, of both numbats and also those other species, we're really using a system of monitoring cameras uh, spread out throughout the, the landscape. 
and last year a detailed collaborative study between DBCA and the University of Western Australia estimated a population of close to 2,000 numbats living across the Upper Warren. The future of sustainable prescribed bird again, my opinion, Bill Smart again, is get rid of the helicopters, get rid of the aeroplanes and do it by hand. When you have so many ignition points over a small area, you create far too much heat. And it's this heat which is catastrophic to the, to the animals in it. If you put a perimeter around the area, you're going to burn, there's no escape. And then you go ahead and light fires every 200 metres. It virtually guarantees the destruction of everything within that area. A wildfire will come through and it'll go through a one front. Animals can move to the side and it's not as ferocious as some of these prescribed birds are purely and simply because the amount of heat that is generated by multiple ignition points. That's the secret and that's the understanding. They have to do more research and understand how much heat goes into these prescribed birds. Farmer Bill Smart speaking to our reporter Mark Bennett near Manjimup in Western Australia. And that is Australia-wide for this Tuesday. Remember, you can podcast this show whenever you want to. Just head to the ABC Listen app and subscribe. I'm Sinead Mangan. I hope you're having a lovely evening. Speak to you again tomorrow. Cheerio. ABC Listen.